At Cornerstone, we inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. What's that key word again? Wholeheartedly. That's right. Because following Jesus makes life better, makes you better at life, and what else does it do? Thank you, Kent. You get a star for today. Awesome. (laughs) So here we are on site, and I'm always glad to see you here. There's nothing that compares to being actually in person with one another. And for those that are uh, watching either on demand or online, welcome. We are glad that you are here with us as well. One of the best ways to keep up to date with what's going on at Cornerstone is to subscribe to our podcast because that's the first place that we post the messages from Sunday morning. And you can subscribe to the podcast there at cornerstonenh.org slash on demand. Some of you will be watching on Sunday morning one week from when we're recording this live. So welcome. I'm glad that you are here as well. And if you are new to Cornerstone, I would invite you to... Uh, let us know who you are so that we can welcome you personally and stay in touch with you. One of the easiest ways to do that is to text the word NEW to our church number, 603-225-2550. Today, we are continuing our series called Permission to be Real. We are looking at the soundtrack of life in the book of Psalms. What we see in the Psalms is people being honest and real and authentic before God, and we take from that that God must be okay with that, that he is giving us permission to be real with him, but also permission to be real with one another as well. And one of the most challenging parts of reading through the Psalms and understanding the Psalms are a group of Psalms, and there are also other passages in the scripture where you will see this. There is actually a Psalm like this written by Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah. So you will find this kind of psalm, this kind of expression, this kind of prayer in other parts of the Bible as well. But it's one of the most challenging types of psalm, challenging parts of scripture to understand and to apply. I'm going to teach you a new word for most of you, imprecatory Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms. Now, what is an imprecation? It is a curse. So today we are talking about the cursing Psalms. And uh, you will see what I mean (laughs) when we read through what is perhaps one of the most famous of the imprecatory psalms, it's Psalm 109, because it seems to be so out of place and so much in contrast to what we know from other parts of the Bible, in particular from Jesus' teaching on sermon on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. So our question becomes, how do we reconcile these psalms that are calling down curses on a person's enemy with Jesus who taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So just to kind of highlight the the problem and the contrast that you are going to experience, I'm going to read this psalm, which is Psalm 109, and I'm going to leave this verse from the Sermon on the Mount up on the screen just so that you can compare and contrast what I'm reading and Jesus teaching and see if you see any kind of issues that we might need to work through. So in order 
for you to get the, the, the best and fullest effect from this psalm, I'm going to read it from the message translation. So you're welcome to follow along if you can pull up the message translation. If not, you can just uh, listen. This is Psalm 109 from the message translation. My God, don't turn a deaf ear to my hallelujah prayer. Liars are pouring out invective on me. Their lying tongues are like a pack of dogs out to get me, barking their hate, nipping at my heels for no reason. I loved them. Now they slander me, yes, me, and treat my prayer like a crime. They return my good with evil. They return my love with hate. And there's an implied therefore. Therefore, send the evil one to accuse my accusing judge. Dispatch Satan or the accuser to prosecute him. When he's judged, let the verdict be guilty. And when he prays, let his prayers turn to sin. Give him a short life and give his job to somebody else. Make orphans of his children. Dress his wife in widow's black. Turn his children into begging street urchins, evicted from their homes, homeless. May the bank foreclose and wipe him out, and strangers like vultures pick him clean. May there be no one around to help him out, no one willing to give his orphans a break. Chop down his family tree so that nobody even remembers his name. But erect a memorial to the sin of his father, And make sure his mother's name is there too. Their sins recorded forever before God, but they themselves sunk in oblivion. That's all he deserved since he was never once kind, hounded the afflicted and heartbroken to their graves. Since he loved cursing so much, let curses rain down. Since he had no taste for blessing, let blessings flee far from him. He dressed up in curses like a fine suit of clothes. He drank curses, took his baths in curses. So give him a gift, a costume of curses. He can wear curses every day of the week. That's what they'll get, those out to get me. An avalanche of just desserts from God. Verse 21. Oh God, my Lord, step in. Work a miracle for me. You can do it. Get me out of here. Your love is so great. I'm at the end of my rope. My life in ruins. I'm fading away to nothing, passing away. My youth gone, old before my time. I'm weak from hunger and can hardly stand up. My body a rack of skin and bones. I'm a joke in poor taste to those who see me. They took one look and shake their heads. Help me, O God, my God. Save me through your wonderful love. They'll know that your hand is in this, that you, God, have been at work. Let them curse all they want. You do the blessing. Let them be jeered by the crowd when they stand up, followed by cheers for me, your servant. Dress my accusers in clothes dirty with shame, discarded and humiliating old ragbag clothes. My mouth's full of great praise for God. 
I am singing his hallelujahs, surrounded by the crowds, for he's always at hand to take the side of the needy, to rescue a life from the unjust judge. So as I'm sure you can tell, there is a little bit of a contrast between the bulk, the the center part of that psalm especially, and what we uh, generally think of as the, the feel and the sense and what Jesus teaches. So if we believe that the entirety of Scripture is inspired by God, if we believe that what the Bible teaches is true, is true, which is one of the pillars of our paradigms, what we have to figure out is how this fits into that big picture. Because the key word here for this pillar is the word unified, that the whole Scripture together needs to be taken taken as a unified whole. So what are the imprecatory psalms, the psalms that call down curses on enemies, what are they teaching? And I think what we'll see is that they teach us something about God's character. And in fact, that's the one word summary for what we are talking about today is character. The psalms And these imprecatory, cursing psalms teach us something about God's character, and we want to understand what that is. I'm going to give credit where credit is due. One of the best resources I found for understanding and applying the imprecatory psalms for uh, for us is a book that is actually called Praying Curses. That's one of the reasons why I named this uh, this message after that, to help you remember that. So if you want to go deep in the cursing psalms, you can pick up this book. You might think that that's kind of weird, but uh, it's actually quite good and quite practical. Uh, so you can check that out if you like. Uh, but The point that the author of that book and the point that we're going to be talking about today is that you actually can learn something about God's character and who he is and what he's like and that that has implication for us. And the bottom line for today is this, that we as followers of Jesus, we as people who are called by God's name, we who are Uh, give our allegiance to God, our citizens in the kingdom of God, are part of the family of God. We care about what God cares about. And the imprecatory Psalms teach us something about what God cares about. So if you've been wondering how to spell imprecatory, it's included in the challenge, so you can see it up here. But what I want you to do by the end of this is to be able to identify the lesson from the imprecatory Psalms that you most need. God is going to teach you something about his character that applies to your life. And I want you to be able to identify what that thing is, what lesson you're supposed to draw from these psalms that we're looking at today. So let's pray and then let's dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to know you. We want to understand you. We want to uh, be able to understand, read and understand the entirety of the scriptures, and you have included these cursing psalms in the inspired word of God. So please speak to us through these psalms, through this one in particular. Speak to every heart, every person who is here right now, those who are listening online, those who are watching later. 
you know the need in every person's life and heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet that need in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 All right, so in the imprecatory Psalms, the cursing Psalms, we see that we need to care about what God cares about. We are a people who care about what God cares about. So the first thing that I want you to notice is that what God cares about, what we're going to learn about, it actually teaches us something about who God is. It teaches us about his character. Now, as we've been going through the Psalms, what we see are, they're basically a lot of testimonies. Very often they are testimonial. They tell about a person's journey. We looked at Psalm 37, I believe it was, that talks out about how the person was looking out over the world and seeing how the unjust were the ones that seemed to have peace and wholeness and prosper. And they work through, we see the psalmist working through that. How does that, how does that fit with who God is? And it starts out with an affirmation of God's goodness. It tells the journey that the psalmist went through. And then at the end, it reaffirms the goodness of God and his uh, his sovereignty and all of this kind of thing. Well, you see the same kind of process happening in many of these psalms, including these cursing psalms, these imprecatory psalms. What you will miss if you get kind of tripped up by the stuff that's in the middle is that these are actually psalms of praise. Look at how Psalm 109 starts. Oh God, whom I praise. It starts with that hallelujah, praise the Lord. The the expression of praise. And then at the end of the psalm, the psalmist returns to that same theme. In the last two verses of the psalm, it says, but I will give repeated thanks to the Lord, praising him to everyone. And why is he praising? Why is he giving thanks? Because he's learned something about God's character. And he states that lesson. For he stands beside the needy, ready to save them from those who condemn them. The setting, the context, because remember context is king in understanding, reading and understanding the scriptures. The setting for this seems to be someone who is facing some kind of trial, either a trial in public opinion or their relationships or an actual trial where they are being falsely accused and they have all of these enemies out to get them all of these enemies who lack any kind of character or anything uh, related to truth and justice and they're accusing the psalmist and the psalmist is crying out to help from god and he's finding this is his testimony that in the end the lord stands beside the needy and he's ready to save them from those who condemn them. What we are talking about is in part God's sovereignty. What this is affirming and teaching us is in part that God is in control. And in that book, Cursing Psalms, it quotes another author from his book, The Message of the Psalms. And I like what it says here. It says, it is bold, these, these psalms that call down cursings, these psalms that are so raw and honest, expressing how the psalmist really feels about the situation, they are bold because it insists that all such experiences of disorder, and I like the way that this author categorizes the psalms, and this is related to that word. He says there are psalms, they can fall into three basic categories. There are psalms of disorder, of orientation, and of reorientation. 
So if you've got a psalm of orientation, that's like Psalm 23 that we looked at last week where it's talking about the Lord is my shepherd. It's like, this is what it's like if you belong to the family of God. You know, enemies, you don't have to worry about them chasing you down because the Lord is going to send goodness and mercy chasing you down for the rest of your life. So that's a psalm of orientation. There are some that are of reorientation. I was messed up and I had it wrong. This is Psalm 37. But now I see the error of my ways and I've come around to the right perspective. And then there are Psalms of disorientation. And that's probably where most of the imprecatory Psalms go. It's like, this doesn't make sense. So God, do something. God, help me. God, help me figure this out. Help me be rescued. I need your help. So in the midst of that feeling of disorder and disorientation, we see the psalmist and their prayers. And we see that when they express that about those experiences, it's a, because it's in the scriptures, it's a proper subject for discourse with God. I love this. There is nothing out of bounds, nothing precluded or inappropriate. The Lord is big enough to handle whatever questions and problems you bring to him. The things that you're afraid to admit that you wonder about, he's big enough to handle them. And we have permission to be real. We can be honest about those challenges and difficulties and questions that we have. And he goes on to say that everything properly belongs in this conversation of the heart. That's kind of what I was trying to say by combining what the Bible teaches is true with the, the Psalms are true to feeling. It, you can have a conversation of the heart with your heavenly father. You don't have to be guarded. You can be authentic. You can be transparent. He's not fooled anyway. So you might as well be honest. Everything properly belongs in this conversation of the heart. To withhold parts of life from that conversation is in fact to withhold part of life from the sovereignty of God. When you are honest and open, when you look and just kind of throw everything out there that you're feeling and experiencing, you're entrusting that to a God who is in control, who loves you, who has your best interest at heart. So you're embracing his sovereignty by being authentic and honest. He's big enough to handle it. He's powerful enough to work it out. So, we care about what God cares about. We see his character, and one of the things that we see about his character in the scriptures and in these particular types of psalms is that God cares about justice, and therefore so should we. God cares about justice. This is a cry for justice. It starts out again, O God whom I praise, goes on to say, don't stand silent and aloof. Have you ever felt like God was silent and aloof when there's something going on in your life or a question that you have? Don't stand silent and aloof while the wicked slander me and tell lies about me. What do they like? What do these people like towards me? They repay evil for good and hatred for my love. So what he's saying is, look, this is unjust. This is not fair. It is not right. 
And you're the God that I praise. You're the one who cares about justice. And so implied in these prayers is that God does care about justice, that he doesn't like to see the, the ev- evil given in payment for good or hatred for love, that, that by just praying, this, the psalmist is expressing their faith that God cares about justice and he wants to do something about it. And when we see injustice, it should do something to us. We should care about it because God cares about injustice. And it's okay to be angry about some things. In fact, we see God being angry about some things. In Ephesians 4.26, the Apostle Paul deals with this issue. The more famous and common formulation that you might be familiar with is be angry and sin not. The New Living Translation kind of teases that out a little bit and and he's quoting actually a psalm. It's Psalm 4.4. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Now, let's tease this out a little bit. What he's saying is it's possible to be angry and not sin. And what we see in the imprecatory Psalms and in the whole of Scripture, there are some things that God is not happy about. And injustice, when people are mistreated, when right is not done, when, pe- when people are taken advantage of, those are the kinds of things that make God angry. But the where it crosses into sin is when anger becomes the controlling influence in your life. In Ephesians 5.18, we're told to be filled with the Spirit. And I often talk about how what that means is that the only thing that should be the controlling influence in your life is God's Holy Spirit. Because the other part of that verse, it actually starts with the saying, don't be drunk on wine. Well, what happens when you're drunk on wine? It's the alcohol that becomes the controlling influence in your life. And he says, instead, God's Holy Spirit should fill you. It's God's Holy Spirit that should be the controlling influence. So whenever I experience anger, frustration, difficulty, fear, here's how I know when I'm crossing over into danger. When that begins to make my decisions for me, when those things become the controlling influence in my life. There are things that should make us weep and pound the table. That formulation comes from an author uh, in his book, Master Planning, and when trying to figure out what are you passionate about? What should you give your life to? Well, ask yourself the questions. What are the things that make you cry? What are the things that make you weep? And what are the things that make you angry, that make you pound the table? Um, yeah, you're, you're going to encounter people who, who you can tell they feel passionately about something and God feels passionately about justice and so should we. The prophet Micah summed it up in this famous verse. Micah 6, 8 says, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice Set things right. Do things right. Don't let injustice prevail. That's what God is like. That's what he wants us as his people to be like. Love, kindness. The word there is hesed, which is that idea of faithful covenant love. And then to walk humbly 
with your God, to walk humbly with your God. And that also ties into some aspect of the psalm. So we are supposed to care about the things that God cares about. God, uh, we learn about his character through the imprecatory psalms. We see that he cares about justice. That's a big part of his character. But we also see in the imprecatory psalms that God cares about his name or his reputation. And so should we. Whenever you see the idea of God's name in the scriptures, it's talking about his character. It's talking about who he is. It's talking about um, his reputation. Well, reputation is tied to character, right? Because as you do things, you gain a reputation. And so a character is reflected in your reputation. And we see in the Psalms, when the psalmists are crying out for justice, there's often a concern for God's character, or, or I'm sorry, his reputation or his name included in that. We actually see that in that passage that we looked at from Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus' teaching. Let's look at more of the context. Remember, context is king. You have heard that you have heard the law says, love your neighbor. And notice that that's in quote because that's actually in the Torah, in the instruction, in the Hebrew Bible. Now, what people did is they reflected on that and said, wrongly, well, if God told us to love our neighbors, then that means we can hate our enemies. So, you know, that, that kind of makes sense to me, right? I mean, you love your neighbor, the people who are closest and dearest to you, but you know, what do you do with your enemies? Well, we hate them, of course. That's just kind of common sense, right? So that's what they were thinking. But Jesus, of course, corrects that and says, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he goes on to say, in, this, in that way, in what way? In loving your enemies and in praying for those who persecute you, in doing good to those who do evil to you, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Now, part of our purpose as people, because we were created in the image of God, is to reflect the image of God, that people should be able to look at us and know what God is like, because we are created in his image, and we reflect his character. Whenever you see in the scripture where it talks about being a child of or a son of someone, what they're talking about is not necessarily biology. They're talking about character. Because when Jesus said, you are a son of your father, the devil, what's he saying? That, that they, they were given birth by the devil? No, he's saying your character is reflective of the enemy. And in particular, in those contexts, he's saying, because you lie all the time, you are a child of your father, the devil, because he's been a liar from the beginning. So when it says, when, we're, when we return love to our enemies, when we pray for those who persecute us, we're reflecting the character of God. In that way, you are true children of your father in heaven. That's what that means. Well, how, how, how does God act? And how does that reflect what God would do in that situation. He, and Jesus draws a conclusion from just observation. He says, for he, God, gives his sunlight 
to both the evil and the good. Remember, you're dealing with a primarily agrarian society. Sunlight and rain are fuel for the bank account. It's what keeps you alive. It's what keeps you fed and housed. So when God gives sunlight and when he sends rain, he's doing good to them in a way that we don't think about. You know, we think, so sunlight, great. We can go out and swim and have a picnic or when it rains, oh, bummer. No, this was lifeblood for them. And so they are blessings. And what does God do? He sends his sunlight on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the just and unjust alike. He, that's what God is like. And so we should be also. Peter, the apostle, picks up this theme in his first letter in verse, chapter 3, verse 9. It says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them, bla- pay them back with a blessing. Pay them back with a blessing. And here, the apostle Peter is turning that famous phrase on its head. Paybacks are heaven. Paybacks are heaven. That's what he's saying here. Look, when when you pay back, you're going to pay back curses with blessings. Return good for evil because that's what God is like. And this actually also ties into the idea of sovereignty. This is one of my favorite points from the book that I showed you, Cursing Psalms. Um, When... The psalmist is directing his appeal to God. What he's doing is he's foregoing retaliation, payback, and revenge. He's foregoing all of those things. And saying, I'm not going to do that, but God, I believe that you care about justice, and I'm going to entrust myself to you and trust that you will take care of it. This is why I say, next point, what God cares about, God will take care of, and we can trust him to do it. What God cares about, and for those of you who are grammar nerds, I'm sorry about my dangling prepositions, it just fits better that way, but what God cares about, God will take care of, and we can trust him to do it. That same idea is picked up by the Apostle Paul, as we saw Peter do now we see Paul do in his letter to the Roman Christians he says and he's getting towards the end of the book he's kind of giving these bullet point summaries of here's some instruction that you need things I want you to remember and he says never pay back evil with more evil never take your own revenge instead leave room for God's wrath because it is written vengeance belongs to me and I will repay says the Lord. I love this idea of leaving room for God's wrath. I've talked before, you know, the Apostle Paul talked about in my weakness, God shows his strength. And I always picture, okay, you've got, you've got this, this cup that's your source of strength. And you can put your strength in it and depend upon that, whatever strength you have. But if you're weak, if there's not much in the cup, What that allows is for God to pour even more of his strength into your life. And I would much rather have a little tiny cup of my strength and a big old cup of God's strength than to have a full cup 
of my strength with no room for God to show his strength. It's the same idea here. When we try to make people pay for what they've done for us, we're in essence kind of elbowing God out of the way and saying, no, I'll take care of this. I'll make them pay. I'll take care of this. Who do you think can give a payback with greater power? Who do you think is more concerned about justice? Who do you think can make it right for real, make it right? I think it's probably God. And so what he's saying here is, look, yeah, you could take revenge, you could avenge, you could fight, you could make them pay, but every time you do that, you're elbowing God out of the way and saying, I'll take care of this. I got this, God. (laughs) And you don't. And you don't have the right, we don't have the right to do that. Because God has said, I reserve that right for me. I reserve that right for me. And that's why he quotes in that passage when he says, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. That's actually from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which is also written in poetry like the Psalms. Here's what God says in that passage. I will take revenge. I will pay them back. In due time, their feet will slip. One of the things that Sue Ellen and I found early on in ministry is that very often, and this isn't unique to ministry, I'm sure you've had this experience as well, that sometimes people misinterpret and misunderstand your motives. Or they are not gracious, they don't give you the benefit of the doubt, they don't uh, assume the best. And so sometimes people talk and sometimes uh, things that are said and done that are unfair. And the 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 default kind of gut instinct, the impulse is to defend yourself and go and chase down everybody who's heard the bad things and tell them, you know, that's not, that's not true. You know, don't, don't believe on any of that stuff. I'm actually a pretty nice guy, <laughs> right? But what we found early on was that it was much better to let our character speak for us. You know, uh, people are eventually going to say, eh, that, that fits, or eh, I'm not so sure about that. That doesn't fit. And what, what we're in essence doing is saying, look, we're going we're gonna to do our best. We're going to fail, but we're going to leave our reputation and our name up to God. We're going to leave room for him. And here in this passage, the Lord is saying, I'm going to take care of it. You know, if you see people getting away with murder, eventually there's going to be a time where their foot's going to slip. They're not on solid ground. Their day of disaster will arrive and their destiny will overtake them. You can entrust yourself to God and let him take care of all that other stuff. It's not ours to do. We don't have any right. We let God take care of it. The other thing that we see in this psalm is that God cares about his son and so should we. We looked... At this passage many times, I encouraged you to memorize it. It's John 5.39. It is the foundation of our framework for reading and understanding the Bible. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, the Bible, because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And the framework, not a pillar of the framework, but the framework for reading and understanding the Bible from the Bible is this that the point of the Bible 
is to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the key word, the key interpretive, the, the interpretive key to the scriptures. And so we should not be surprised when, as we are studying through the scriptures, that we encounter scriptures that point us to Jesus since the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. And in this psalm, from the earliest of days, believers, followers of Jesus, have seen the story of Jesus. And in fact, that passage where it says, let another one take his place, the apostles read that and used that and applied that when Judas betrayed Jesus as a justification, as the reason for choosing a replacement in Matthias, the 12th apostle. And as you read through and you see, basically, here's this guy who is doing right, who is blessing, who is reflecting God's character, doing right. And he's being called up before an unjust judge and jury, falsely accused. We see that he is uh, convicted in this court, whether it's an actual court or court of public opinion, and as a result, he is being condemned. But he's not retaliating. He's not fighting back. He's crying out to the Lord for justice and entrusting his cause and himself to the Lord. And in the end, we see the Lord coming through for him, rescuing him, redeeming his reputation, putting his, the Lord's, stamp of approval on his life. Sound familiar at all? People from the earliest days, saw the story of Jesus. And in fact, if you read the, the New Living Translation, they do an interesting thing when it starts to that body where it just lists all the curses, the body of the psalm. They add, uh, they said. Now that's an interesting thing because it's not, it's not in the, it's not literally in the scripture, but they're giving you an interpretive uh, slant on it. And if you read it like that, they said, and then go through all those things, it sounds a lot like what the people were saying about Jesus. Let's cut him off. That's, that's a Hebrew idiom for putting him to death. Let's, let's make sure that nobody ever hears about him again, and we're just not going to put up with it. So that is a way of understanding and then and seeing how this psalm points us to Jesus. All of the scriptures is designed to do that. And in fact, I, I'm going to bring up this quote again. I've given this to you a couple of times, but um, and it's from the book Interpreting the Psalms, which is really a good one as well. Uh, and it's talking about all the different ways that it talks about the people of God, those who fear the Lord, the righteous, the faithful, the servants of the Lord. All of these are just ways of describing someone who makes the Lord the decisive orienting center of your their lives. And that's, I think, the point, is you put the Lord at the center of your life, then you can entrust yourself to him, 
You can count on him. You can be honest with him. You can, you can call out for justice, but you don't have to take it on yourself. You make the Lord the orient, decisive orienting center of your life, the thing that is above all things in your life. And we see what, how that works out for the psalmist and it's reflected in the life of Jesus as well. Uh, uh, he cries out, Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me because of your unfailing love. That's that same word from Micah 6, 8. The hesed, the, the, the covenant love that God has for his people. And he's saying, because this is what you're like, you're a faithful, loving God. Help me. That's what you're like, so that's what you do. And then... It talks about his reputation. Let them see that this is your doing, that you yourself have done it, Lord. Let them see that this is your doing. In other words, this isn't about me. This is about you. I want them to see who you are, so do this for me. And when you do rescue me, I'm going to give you all the credit and all the glory. Because you're, you're the decisive center, the decisive orienting feature of my life. And so when we invite people to say yes, that's what we're inviting them to do. To entrust yourself to the God who had sent his son so that he would die on the cross in your place, take the penalty, the wrath of God, all the curses that could rightly be called down on you for your failings and behavior and place them on Jesus so that you can receive blessing. That's another part of God's character. He returns blessing for cursing. When we were in rebellion, when we were cursing God, literally or figuratively, then he sent his son to die on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be adopted into his family, citizens in his kingdom. And when we say yes to him, we're declaring our allegiance to him. We're going to follow him. We're going to make him the decisive orienting feature the decisive center of our lives. If you're following Jesus, that's what it's supposed to look like. That's what you signed up for. That's what we do. So today we're talking about God's character. And we're seeing in these imprecatory psalms the things that God cares about and seeing that we care about what God cares about because we're supposed to reflect him to the world. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look over the growth guide, the notes that you've taken, the things that we've talked about. And I want you to pray a simple prayer right now in this time and in this place, wherever you are, and trust that God is going to answer. One of the best advice that, best pieces of advice that I ever got about prayer was when you pray, watch and see what happens next. What thoughts come to mind? What uh, events happen what, what happens next after you pray? Because we believe that God answers prayer. And so we should go into prayer with a sense of expectation. So let's pray this prayer. Lord, what do you want me to see? What lesson do you want me to draw from the imprecatory Psalms, from what we've looked at today? And then listen and pay attention to what comes to mind next and trust that God can make his, he's big enough to make his voice known to you you'll notice in the growth guide that there's a little space under the challenge so that you can just write down what comes to mind maybe it's just one word justice maybe it's something more specific but let's take a second and pray 
and ask the Lord what, to identify the lesson that he wants us to learn from the psalm that we looked at today. Heavenly Father, speak to us individually, personally. What lesson, what word do we need to hear from you about what we've looked at today? Now I want you to take a second and write down what you heard, what came to mind. Don't worry about, oh, I'm not sure. Just trust that God can speak to you. If you get it wrong, he's big enough to redirect you. But just write down how you think the Lord is speaking to you, the thing that came to mind when you prayed that prayer. And now I'll pray for you, and with the amen, we'll be released to our discussion groups. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God. We learn about your character throughout the scriptures. And Lord, we thank you for including these cursing psalms because they point us to you and to your son who was cursed so that we could be blessed. And Lord, I pray that we would accurately, authentically, boldly pray and reflect your character to the world around us. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.